Matthew chapter 27 and verse 46. It is only one te- uh, verse, but I will ask you to please stand in the honor of the reading of the Holy Word of God. Verse 46 of Matthew chapter 27. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let us pray. Father, this morning we are humbled, Lord, by your presence in this place. God, we know that you are with us always. Wherever we go, You are there. But Father, there are times when You seem to manifest Your Spirit amongst us in a very fresh and real and new way. And this morning, Father, I sense that here in this place, Lord, and we're thankful for that. God, I ask that You would anoint me this morning to teach Your Word and to preach in the power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit of God. As I do my best to grapple with and to explain what is, in my opinion, probably the most difficult sentence, in all of Your Word. Help me to say nothing more than what needs to be said and nothing less. And Father, we pray this morning, not only that You would anoint me to preach, Father, for I much desperately need Your anointing from heaven, but that You would anoint our ears to hear, that You would anoint our eyes to see, that You would anoint our hearts to understand. God, that You would soften them even now. And Lord, I pray, Father, that... uh, You would help us to be captivated this morning by You and that our thoughts about what is coming after and uh, the things that try to strip away our attention, Lord, that You would give us a very special help this morning to uh, pay You all the attention You deserve to hear from You. And Lord, we ask God that You would do whatever it is You desire here this morning. Be glorified in our midst. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. This phrase is more difficult to understand than anything that takes place at the cross. Jesus, the Son of God, crying out to His own Father, Why have you forsaken me? The word forsaken is really one of the most tragic words in human speech. There are those who have been forsaken by their spouse, forsaken by their family, forsaken by their friends, The very meaning of the word forsaken, it is a difficult word to grapple with. It is a a ruthless word. It is a word that none of us like to experience, being forsaken. The words spoken by Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which can I quickly say, just so you understand the text, Jesus actually said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is Hebrew, translated in English, My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? These words spoken mark the height of his suffering. Everything else that Jesus suffered, he suffered in silence. He stood silent before his accusers at his mock trial. When they took his hands and they bound him to the whipping post and then tore the flesh off of his back with a cat of nine tails, yet he remained silent. When the soldiers took a crown of thorns and put it on his head and they blindfolded him and then they took their stabs and hit him across the head and said, prophesy to us, Christ, who is it that hits you? Yet he remained silent. Concerning his suffering, even when they nailed the 
the, the nails through his hands and through his feet, he remained silent and prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But concerning his suffering, he remained silent. As they stood there and mocked him and ridiculed him and stripped him of his garments, he was silent. But here, at the height of his suffering, he speaks. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It is a statement that most of us have made at one time in our life or another, and all of us have at least thought it. But the truth is, none of us have actually gone through the forsaking of God except the Holy One of Israel. And this morning, our text marks the height of His suffering. The worst thing the Savior could experience is to be separated from God, forsaken. Even from His birth, God was there with Him protecting him, supernaturally guiding his steps. As a child, he was about his father's business. At the age of 12, he knew so much about the father that he was, that he was uh, confounding the wise as he was teaching them the things of God. God was with him as he worked out his miracles and, 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 and in, his, in his three years of ministry as he was performing great works and healing the sick and giving sight to the blind. Satan was out to destroy him and the Pharisees were out to destroy him. His father was there. His father was with with him. But here, for the first time, he is there alone. God has turned away. And Jesus is left for a period of time all alone experiencing the wrath of man, the wrath of Satan. But that which was most unbearable to him was the wrath of God. As God poured out His fury against sin on His Son. All of us have cried out the same thing before, or at least we thought it, but it has never been true of us. When Israel cried out in their bondage, God heard their cries and sent to them Moses. When they stood before the Red Sea, God stepped in and parted the waters. When the three Hebrew children were thrown into the flames, the flames did not burn them. And there was one there amongst them, the Son of God. But here, it has happened. God the Father has forsaken God the Son. All the other sayings that we've dealt with so far, they make a whole lot more sense to us. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That makes sense to us, a loving and forgiving God. Today you will be with me in paradise, is what He told the thief that wanted forgiveness. That makes sense to us. Woman, behold your son. And to John, He said, behold your mother. These things make sense to us, but this statement, it startles us. For David has said in the classic psalm, I have never seen the righteous forsaken. But here not only is the righteous forsaken, but the righteous one has been forsaken. These words that we're going to study this morning are the fullest manifestation 
of divine love, and yet the most awe-inspiring display of God's inflexible justice. I have about five points this morning I want to share with you from our text, and we'll be done. The first thing I want you to notice from our text is the horror of sin and the unbearable cost of the wage that it requires. The Bible tells us that about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Basically, their day started at six in the morning and it ended at six o'clock at night. So the sixth hour is noon. And the ninth hour is three o'clock. I could preach for a year about the symbolism of everything that took place on the cross. But at about noon, the Bible says in the verse previous to the one that I read to you, darkness came on the land. And it was dark for about three hours. And after about three hours, Jesus Christ is found. It is an amazing thought that darkness, the darkness that that rejected the light, the darkness that had no desire for the things of God, that rejected His love and rejected His message and rejected hope, darkness has slain the Lamb of God. And while He is crucified at midday, the brightest time of the day when the sun is right above your head, in the middle of the sky, at the brightest time of day, God causes darkness to cover the land at this horrific event. And the only light that we have in darkness is the light of Calvary's cross. And that cross fully and completely exposes everything once and for all. It exposes to us man's wickedness. It exposes to us the the, 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 uh, the place that sin will lead us. It exposes the, the wages of sin. It exposes Satan's ability to, to take and, and lead man in the wrong directions and influence him to destroy the Holy One of God. It exposes to us Jesus' love for us. But it also exposes a God who is just. A God who cannot look on sin. A God who is holy beyond what we can conceive. We see the horror of sin. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. I want to share with you this morning that the wage of sin that was paid on the cross is death upon death. And I will explain that in a moment. Death upon death. Romans 5 says, By one man centered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Had there been no sin, there would be no death. But because of sin, death came into this world. But what is death? This is an important question that we need to ask. And, and as we study what death is this morning, we'll better understand why the Father had to forsake the Son. What is death? Is it the silence that reigns forever? After the last breath has been drawn from the body and the body lies motionless? Is death the destruction of the body when the blood ceases to flow and it ceases to circulate and the eyes remain expressionless? This is death. But it is much more than this. 
For the wages of sin is also spiritual death. Separation from the fount of life. Sin excludes us from God's presence. You remember when Adam and Eve were told of God that uh, they would surely die if they ate of the apple, and they ate of the apple, and yet, from a physical point of view, they lived for hundreds of years after the event. But yet they died spiritually that day as they were separated from God. We see that the second death is eternal separation from God. Where the soul lives forever in a state of torment. As those who have decided they will not serve Him, they will not live with Him, they will not follow Him. In all of eternity, their decision to reject God and to live away from Him is solidified. And God says, if this is how you want it, then this is how you will have it forevermore. Separation from Me. That is the second death. Spiritual death. We see the story of the prodigal son who had left and went and squandered his wealth and he came back home and the father said, My son was dead and is alive again. We see Jesus say, Unless a man be born again, he cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. You see, there is life and death also, spiritually speaking. And when Jesus died on the cross, He had to suffer both deaths. I want to be clear about what I'm saying here this morning. I do not want to be misunderstood. And by the time I'm done with point number four, I think I'll be clear enough. Jesus did not die spiritually on the cross. But He did take the penalty of death, spiritually speaking, by being separated from God. He had to be for a period of time, all alone. He had to bleed and die, for without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. But He had to take your place and my place. And He had to die the death we deserve. And the death that we deserve and the death that we inherit through sin is far more than physical death alone. It is also separation from God. Because God is a holy God who cannot look on sin. Jesus cried out, Why hast thou forsaken me and left me here alone? It was on the cross that Jesus was receiving the wages that were due His people. Death upon death. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24 that He had no sin of His own, but that He was bearing our sins in His own body on the tree. My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? Separated Yourself from me. This is the awful doom awaiting the lost who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Can I tell you that hell is a real place? And it is helpful for us to understand the reality of hell with the pictures of flame and the word torment and the pictures of darkness and outer darkness and living in loneliness forevermore with no hope of change, those things paint a good picture for us of how terrible hell is. But the worst part about hell is eternal separation from God. 
those who will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power is what 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 tells us. Eternal separation from the fount of all goodness and the source of life. We see the wages of our sin. Separation from God. Laid upon the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We also see in our text the absolute holiness and the inflexible justice of God. It is easiest, in my opinion, to understand what's taking place at the cross when we understand that there are four entities that did a work. At the cross, man did a work. He nailed the Lord to a tree. He put on display the wickedness of his heart. Satan also did a work in orchestrating the the, the process from beginning to end and in leading Judas to betray the Lord. The Lord Jesus did a work, a great and mighty work, which we have discussed much in the last three weeks. But God the Father did a work as well. He exhibited His holiness and satisfied His justice by pouring out His wrath on the One who has made sin for us. The holiness of God is unspeakable. I want to be so very careful this morning not to come across as condescending or rude. But we live in a culture that has lost the reality of the holiness of our God. And rather than trying to allow Him through the power of the Spirit to conform us in His image and be made holy as He is holy, we have tried to dumb down God to look like us, act like us, think like us, and be like us. But He is not that. He is a holy God. He is a God whose holiness in no way, if I were to spend the rest of the day describing it, I could barely scathe the reality of His holiness and how powerful and other He is than us. He is a holy God capable of speaking a word and creating the existence that we see. So holy is God that when Father Abraham stood before Him and He said, I am but ashes and dust. So holy is God that when Isaiah came into His presence, He said, woe is me and pronounced judgment on Himself. He said, I am undone. So holy is God that the seraphim who attend to Him daily must cover their eyes in His presence. He's holy beyond what I can explain this morning. And a holy God cannot look upon sin. Here's what that means. He can't look upon your sin either. He can't look upon it. This is why we must be in Christ. I'm not trying to scare anybody this morning. But if you are not in Christ, and you stand before God, He will look upon your sin. And the wrath of God will be poured out on you if you do not know Him this morning. Because He's holy. He is just. And we see a God that cannot look upon all the wages of sin, the horribleness of it, as it is laid on His Son. He turns away. And as Romans chapter 8 tells us, He does not spare up His own Son for our sakes. He is holy. And He is just. 
Some of us think, God, why not relent? After all that He went through, very simple, because the wages of sin is death. God is a just God. He is perfectly just. He is perfectly merciful. He is perfectly loving. But He is also perfectly just. And God poured out His wrath on sin. You know, there are a handful of people, even here this morning, I don't know any of you by by name, and I don't have anybody in mind, but I promise you, there are a handful of people here this morning that you're hoping that when you get to heaven, your good is going to outweigh your bad. But God is too just to sweep your bad under the carpet because you did some good deeds. Could you imagine the ridiculousness of a murderer standing before his judge and saying, Judge, oh yeah, I murdered in cold blood. But don't forget, sir, I also mowed my neighbor's lawn when I was 14. And don't forget, sir, that I also did a great work for this lady that was kind of a friend of my mom. She didn't have anybody to take care of her. And every now and then I go over and check up on her. What would you think of a judge that partnered the murder because of all the other good things the murderer had done? You would say, this is not just. Do you think God is any less just? He had to pour out His wrath on sin. And God in His infinite wisdom devised a way where He could be yet just and merciful. Where He could be completely just and completely loving. Where He could look at His Son and say, My wrath has been satisfied and the debt for sin has been paid in full and I am just in pronouncing you clean. I am just in forgiving your sins. I am just in pronouncing you holy. Yet there is mercy for those who will come. This morning, do you know Him? This morning, have you turned to Him? You found forgiveness in Him and in Him alone. We saw the justice of God when He destroyed the world by the flood. We saw the justice of God when fire and brimstone rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah. We saw the justice of God when the plagues We're done on Egypt. But nothing shows the justice of God as He demands the exact debt at the hand of His own Son for our sake. I believe we also see the explanation of Gethsemane. How many of you remember in the Gospel of Luke it records that when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane and He prayed, Father, if there be any way, let this cup pass from Me. And He prayed that three times, but Luke's Gospel records that His, his sweat became His drops of blood. In my study, I found out that Gethsemane literally means the olive press. It's a place where you would take olives and you would squeeze the lifeblood out of the olives. 
Jesus said, Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. John chapter 15. Those of you who have been through my recent marriage counseling know this. In John chapter 15, when Jesus uses the word life, He does not use the word that refers to the blood circulating through the body. He uses the word suke. It means the soul. It is the mind, the will, and the emotions. Jesus said, Greater love has no man than this, that He lay down His soul for His friends. Jesus knew what was coming ahead of Him. In the garden, the cup that He was speaking of was a whole lot more than the cup of physical death. It was a cup of drinking God's wrath against all of sin and everything that is an enemy of God. And Jesus cried out, Lord, if there be any way, let this pass from me. This was the height of His suffering. Our text this morning, which in my opinion, without question, is the hardest for certainly one of the hardest texts to deal with in all of Scripture. And it points to the height of Jesus' suffering. Never was it worse than this. Not man's wrath, not Satan's wrath, but the wrath of God poured out on Him. But I want you to see something this morning, and I think it's very important. We see the the Savior's unswerving faithfulness to God. In John chapter 11, do you remember when when, uh, Jesus was praying to have Lazarus raised from the dead and he prayed out loud and said, Father, I don't, I don't pray this for my sake, but for theirs. He makes the comment in John chapter 11, and I know that thou hearest me always. But in Psalm 22, as it prophesies this very event, verse 2, Jesus says, My God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest me not. In John chapter 8, when he's arguing with the Pharisees, he said of his Father, And he that sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone. But now He cries out, Why have you forsaken me? One further reason I believe that this had to happen the way that it did is because at this stage in Jesus' life, at this moment, He had nothing to rest upon but God's covenant and promise. Further examination of our text will reveal to us that Jesus' cry was not one of distress, was one of distress, but not distrust. Look at your text one more time. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus says, You are still my God. Not just God, not some distant God, but Lord, I don't understand it right now. This is the first time in my life I've ever felt all alone, but You have been with me from birth. You formed me in my mother's womb. You know my deepest thoughts. You know my pains. You have held me up when nobody else would held me up. And when I am here all alone, You are still my God. 
Jesus shows His faith in His Father. It is certainly a cry of distress. There's no doubt about that. But don't read into it that He has distrust in His Father. He knew the promise. He knew the covenant. He knew that He would rise on the third day. And He had even said it. And now as He's left there alone and He senses the presence of His Father leave, for His faith cannot look on this, He cries out, Why hast Thou forsaken Me? But He still calls Him this, You are My God. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us, But we do not have a high priest who is not uh, touched with our infirmities, but he was without sin. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet and without sin. Can I tell you, there's nothing you've ever been through that the Lord Jesus hasn't been through first. There's nobody that can fully understand you this morning like Him. He knows what it is to be forsaken. He knows what it is to be abandoned by His friends. He knows what it is to be misunderstood. He knows what it is to be alone. And He he alone really knows what it is to be in the place where God has turned away. He knows that feeling. For He's the only one that's ever honestly been through it. And because He's been through it, those of us that are now sons and daughters of God, can rest in this. He has promised to never leave us or forsake us. He is with us. But there is a time in all of our lives, you can call it anything you want, the new wearing off, persecution coming, this or that, but there are times when we must trust God. When I don't feel I'm there. And still cry out, My God. The one who was with me from the beginning. The one who fearfully and wonderfully made me. The one who has a plan to prosper me and not to do me harm. The one who is able to do above and abundantly beyond all that I could ask, all that I could imagine. I might not feel You here today, Lord. I might not sense Your presence, but You are still my God. And I will cling to Your promises. And I will be Your servant. Our text, he says, my God. He was distressed, but he still trusted. And I want to tell you this morning, he had to go through it so that he could identify with us. He had to go through it because the Father had to show his justice. And he could not relent on behalf of our wickedness. My God, I lean on thee when all visible and sensible comforts have disappeared. To the invisible support of his refuge and his faith did our Lord go. Job said in Job chapter 13, Though He slay me, yet will I serve Him. Jesus knows how we feel. And can I also say this? A faith that does not rest in God in adversity as well as in prosperity is most likely not real faith at all. You won't really know. And I... 
you won't really know how real your faith is until adversity comes. I thank God for the mountaintops. I do. I love to be on the mountain. I love to be joyful. I love it when everything's going well. And I'll say this. One of the reasons I love it is because it's real easy to praise God there. It's real easy to feel secure there. And I thank God for the mountaintops. But it's in the valley of persecution. It is in the valley of despair. It is in the place of distress that we find out, are you really my God? And do I believe in you when I don't see you, when I can't feel you, when I'm left here alone? Do I believe your word? We also see the basis of our salvation in our text. It's very simple. Nothing profound. But that God is holy and He cannot look on sin. That God is just and He therefore must judge sin wherever it is found. But that God is also loving and He delights in mercy. He devised a way that justice might be satisfied and mercy be left free to flow. The Lord was bearing the curse for us. Not only was His blood for us, but it was for God. To satisfy the wrath of God. For those of you that are believers here this morning, the cross is interpreted to us in Galatians chapter 2. I am crucified with Christ. His death was my death. He was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised from my iniquities. You know, it's helpful to see it that way sometimes. We talk about, we use the word our, and it was our transgressions he was bruised for, but it was also mine. Me. And having said that, we also see the supreme love of Christ for us on display. You know, you've never been loved by anybody like God. So often the the devil tries to tell us something different. Whether it's through media, family, circumstances. No one ever has and no one ever will and no one ever could love you the way Christ has loved you. Those of you that have been here the last four weeks as we've been going through the study of the things spoken from the cross. Look how much He loves us. There is none worth living for but Him. He died for us and He gave us life. And the most horrible part of the cross for our Savior was to be alone and to be forsaken and to taste the wrath of God. That was the, all of it. That overshadows everything else. And for you, He was willing to go through it. That mercy might flow to you this morning. That you might be forgiven. This morning, if, if you're saved, my prayer is that as we meditate on these things, we, we leave with an overwhelming gratitude for the work of our Lord on the cross. 
an amazing wonder at God's ability to be just and yet merciful at the same time. To devise a perfect plan whereby He could make us His own and forgive us and pronounce us righteous and pronounce our debts paid in full while yet not forcing us to pay them ourselves. We should be overwhelmed by the greatness of our Heavenly Father, the greatness of our Savior. And if you're lost here this morning, I want to close with this final point. The idea of being forsaken by God is the ultimate destination of those who refuse to believe. I'm not doing anybody any favors this morning if I pretend that everybody's going to heaven. Because everybody's not going to heaven. And there's only two places. Heaven and hell. This morning, where are you going? The wages of sin is death. And either your wages will be paid in Christ as you place your faith in Him, or you will pay them for all of eternity. I don't say this in a demeaning way, but the stupidity of those who think that they would rather live life away from God and apart from God and away from the fountain of life the giver of all good things, the, 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 the one that blesses us with every good thing for temporary pleasure that will lead to eternal destruction. There is, there is hardly a word that better describes that mentality than stupid. It's insane. If you have not turned to Him this morning, what is it that you're waiting on? What is it that keeps you from Him? All of your excuses when you think of them and you ramble them out of your mouth, they are but meaningless, worthless, and pointless excuses. Turn to Him. Run to Him this morning. He is the answer to your every need. He is the answer to hope. He is the answer to life. He is the answer to forgiveness. He is the answer to purpose and meaning and significance and the reason that I'm made. Satan tries to deceive us. Just as he said to the woman in the garden, it's not as bad as you think. You will not surely die. Whose word proved true? God is merciful. And the fact that He provided a Savior proves it. Everything I've been discussing this last four weeks, it proves that God is merciful. You know what else proves that He's merciful this morning? That He invites you to receive Christ as Savior today. You know what else that proves that He's merciful? That He's been so long-suffering with you and me. That He has been patient and kind. And that after years and years 
and years of rejecting Him and turning from Him and saying, not your will, but my will be done. Turning from Him and rejecting Him and refusing to serve Him. He still stands this morning and says, please come. It's proof that He's merciful. But sinner friend, can I remind you this morning, there is a limit to God's mercy. And if God poured out His wrath on His Son and did not spare Him up, but poured out His wrath on His own Son as He hung there as the debt payment for His people, be assured that He will most certainly pour out His wrath on you if you die in your sins. As our worship team comes this morning, It is amazing the solemn and sobering reality of all that really matters. Of the destination of our soul. Of our relationship with our Creator. Nothing else really matters in this life. This life is but a breath, it's but a vapor. This morning, do you know Him? Have you turned to Him? What are you waiting on? Will you try to laugh it off? Will you try to explain away the deep moving in your spirit and God's just saying, child, today's your day. Quit playing games. Quit running from Me. What do you think you're here for? I'll tell you why you're here. Because God is merciful. And He loves you more than you have ever been loved. He, to say He's willing to pay the price is not a fair statement because He has already paid it. The price is paid for you. This morning, if you're a child of God, I just want to encourage you to be thankful beyond thankful that all the Savior is willing to do for you. You might just want to kneel and thank Him this morning, worship and praise Him, because He's worthy of it. Maybe you need to get right with God today. And maybe you showed up kind of hoping not to be challenged the way that you were challenged if you're lost. Well, I don't apologize for that. Sometimes God has to challenge us before we're willing to listen. Sometimes God's got to just deal with us and say, hold on a second, sir. Hold on a second, ma'am. Let's get real about some things. Let's get true about some things. Maybe He's doing that with you. I want to encourage you to respond this morning and come to God. Father, we love You. We thank You. We praise You, God. We're in awe. We're in awe of You. How You could be so just and yet perfect.